In light of uh, Aubrey's uh, homegoing, I, I felt like I wanted to address an issue that I've never spoke on this in my life. Uh, what happens to infants when they die? What happens to children? And uh, I think we just automatically assume, you, you just sentimentally want to assume, well, they're in heaven. That's the easiest answer. But as I studied the subject, uh, it is uh, an amazing thing to see what has been said. And uh, let us, first of all, look at Psalms 139, the all-knowing God. Then I want to give you five views that have answered this question, according to Norm Geisler. And then uh, let's take a little scriptural journey. And then what I want to really focus on is uh, not just why did God take Aubrey or take children, what does God want us to learn from it? Uh, begin Psalms 139. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. This is the key word to the psalm. God knows everything. You know when I sit <clears throat> and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind, and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So over and over, you know, you know, you know. Now, for a few verses, he's going to say, besides you know, you're every place I want to run to. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, <clears throat> even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. The darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Now, he's using a weaver's term. You knit me. Just like if you've seen them ever make oriental rugs, I went to a place in Fez, Morocco, where five-year-old girls, because they've got little fingers, were taken out of school, and all they did all day was make rugs. Wove all day. And here the picture is God, the master weaver, started weaving the life of a child in the mother's womb. What a picture. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, the mother's womb, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body all the days ordained for me, notice this, 
were written in your book before one of them came to be. God has already picked your funeral day. He picked that while you were in the womb. Is that, isn't that amazing? All the days ordained for me were written in your book before I lived one single day outside the womb. So my hope, this is one of the strongest passages we believe that life begins in the womb. It doesn't have to be outside the womb to be a viable life, right? At conception, something divine takes place, and this divine weaving starts taking place. Well, let's answer this question and deal with it for a while, and then I will try to read to you some of the words of Joel and Kelly, the things God's taught them through this nine-month and 14-day ordeal that they've lived through. Um, church history is full of answers about this idea of when a child dies, where do they go? Uh, the first view, this was the most prominent, started with Ambrose in the third century. Only baptized children go to heaven. That's what Ambrose said. <clears throat> and right after Ambrose was Augustine in the fourth century. And Augustine said, uh, unbaptized children go to hell, where only baptized children go to heaven. Uh, and so it became Roman Catholic tradition. And out of that uh, came limbo. And limbo basically was a softening of this theology. Uh, both uh, Ambrose and Augustine wanted to soften it. And they said, there must be a place where some people don't suffer as much as all-out adult sinners. So they developed limbo, which was the German word at the edge of. And so they developed a doctrine that there's a place at the edge of uh, judgment, but not the full weight of hell and judgment fall on them. So they haven't been baptized. So they go to a place for unbaptized. They don't go to heaven, but they don't go to the worst kind of hell. So that was the great incentive for all Catholics to get their babies baptized as soon as they could. See, we're not infant baptizers, and a lot of times we don't even rush to adult baptism, but you know why Anglicans, Lutherans, and Roman Catholics says we must get the baby baptized. Because in Roman Catholic theology, the baby is justified by faith the moment they're baptized. Their theology says this, that once the child has committed a mortal sin, they lost their justification, and now they have to come through penance to get back to being justified. But this was a serious theology. Get your baby baptized, or they're not covered for eternity. That's a heavy weight on a parent. Prominent in church history, still taught, still believed. Uh, there, there's a, another view uh, that, that is almost as bad. It says that only elect infants go to heaven. Now, there's not one verse in the Bible that says that. And how would you like that to be told to you? How in the world do I know if my child is elect? 
What came out of that was that the children of Christians was guaranteed heaven. And the rest would suffer judgment because they must not be elect because they weren't born into a Christian family. It's nowhere taught in Scripture, but it's sure taught in church history. Um, four known infants. Norm Geisler would probably lean heavy this way. God foreknew who would believe on him eventually, so even at infancy, he goes ahead and takes them because he believed the election was based upon foreknowledge. Um, a fourth view, you don't hear much about it, but that uh, after death, children would be given a second chance that as in the uh, afterlife, they came up to a maturity that they could make a choice. At that time, they could make their choice. People who would say this strongly, you have to believe to go to heaven, and nobody that's never believed could ever go to heaven, so they must have an opportunity to believe. Uh, the fifth view started coming around into church history in the 1700s. It, it's new that all infants go to heaven. What is the biblical view? Uh, why, how can uh, Joel and Kelly have any assurance, and I think the Crandalls, who lost a baby, have any assurance? Why would we say, how can we say that a child going back to Augustine and original sin and the Roman Catholic doctrine that all children are born sinners, and they are, according to Romans 5, how do you overcome original sin once you die? Doesn't that child constitute a sinner? Doesn't God have a right, right to put his wrath on them? Because death is the physical consequence of sin, so they must be identified with Adam to have ever died. Right? You may not like the theology, but it's there. It's in Romans 5. Physical death says the race has been contaminated, and death is the forever reminder that somebody somewhere sinned against God and brought a universal judgment on us. Unless you're a guy like Pelagius who said, no, everybody's born perfect. And it's not, you don't become a sinner until your first sin. Well, Pelagius is wrong. We were conceived in sin, and we went wayward from the womb. So it starts from conception. Oftentimes people say, I don't like the way you, I said, blame it on my mom and dad. It started back at conception. I was conceived in sin. Well, this is why we would argue that infants go to heaven. I would take Psalms 139 as a beginning place. This is going to be all over the Bible. It's a theological thing I'm dealing with here. Is if God, uh, let's take this back at verse 13. For you created my inmost being because I was the child of a Christian. You created my inmost being because I happened to be a Jewish baby. You only created the inmost being of certain infants. That's what you'd have to say. It seems to be God is omnipresent and superactive in the womb of all mothers when they've conceived. And I don't care if this baby was conceived in the back seat of a 57 Chevrolet 
I don't care if this baby was aborted, if this baby was miscarried, if this baby was killed in an auto accident, if this baby was killed in Tracy by a woman out of her head. If God started with the baby in the womb, they must have a pretty significant place in his own heart. He would call them a work of my hand. That's why you don't want to mess with it, doctor, no matter what your credentials are. Uh, I fearfully made them. My frame was not hid. God ordained the days for me. So God will be in charge of my death. So it seems that the beginning place, we have a strong uh, indication of divine involvement of a child conceived in New Guinea, born in South America, it doesn't matter where, if there's been a conception, there's been a supernatural activity of some kind at the beginning of their whole existence. And Psalms 139 would say that. And then we ha I think we see the picture of the man who wrote this describes what he went through when his baby died. Go back to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. David uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan comes to rebuke him for his sin. He'd gone about a year beyond that, maybe uh, nine to ten months. And uh, he comes and he has a message for David. And uh, he tells David, uh, guess what? The baby that Bathsheba is carrying is going to die. You said that the man who stole the lamb should pay fourfold. In David's life, he loses four sons for killing one man. God collected the debt. Ahijah, the baby, Absalom, and my mind goes blank on the other. There's four of them. And so he tells him uh, that uh, you're not going to die for your sin. But the son that's going to be born in verse 14 is going to die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David. I am amazed that the narrator still calls her Uriah's wife. And he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the night lying on the ground. The elders of the household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up 
and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? No. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, here is the debate that goes on. Maybe David was just saying, I'll meet him in the grave. That all he's saying, I must go to him like physical death. David's perspective, according to Psalms 23, 6, was further beyond than the grave. He said, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever when I leave this life. David knew that. And so we understand that what he's saying is, I'll be reunited to this child in the house that I'm going to dwell in. And not just the grave, but going into be with God in paradise or being with God's house forever. Uh, how can an infant go to heaven? This way, God saves by grace. God can take anyone to heaven he wants, right? By whatever means. I don't want to really be involved in getting thieves to heaven in the last hour of their life on a cross. But did you know you could actually go to heaven that way? We believe the grace of God and the blood of Christ, the cross work of Christ, are the two things that can get you to heaven. Did Christ pay for the sin of the child? Would the cross work cover it? The only thing they were not given was the ability to personally place faith. Now, it seems inconceivable to us that God would want to populate hell with people who never rejected him. It seems inconceivable. Uh, notice Revelation 5, 9. I'll just give you two more verses, then we'll try to look at, uh, look at 5, 9 of Revelation. Notice this is astounding. When he sees around the throne of God and he sees people worshiping, he says, and they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men of God from every tribe and language and people and nation, ethnic, whatever, a people group. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. Now, what's interesting, I'm not sure exactly where it stands now. The last time I read any missions book, uh, Ralph Winter said at that time, we were down to about 2,400 ethnic groups on the planet that still had no church in their language, no Bible in their language, or no one that could talk to them about God in their language. 2,400. Let's, let's take it back 1,800 years. At the time, uh, the book of Revelations, there was probably 5,000 to 10,000 language groups that had never been reached. There's no Latinos being reached back here, not Revelation, 90 A.D., uh-uh. Nobody evangelizing South America, Central America, Mexicans. You've got to be kidding. Nobody in Africa. It was Greek, Greek or Hebrew. 
I don't speak Greek. I don't speak Hebrew. Did any infants for all those centuries in those language groups go to heaven? And you ask today, these 2,000, 2,400 language groups that's never been reached, how, do, how are they ever represented in heaven? Lewis Jafer used to always say, he said, I think the majority of heaven will be children from every kindred, tribe, and tongue who may have never heard the gospel who went to heaven in infancy. And they represent every language, every kindred, and every tongue. Now, here's another thing that's interesting. When he's sentencing men and women to their eternal damnation uh, in Revelation 20. Look at that. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Books, plural. Another book, singular. So we got books, singular, book. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had. I can't hear you. As recorded in the books. The sentencing is based upon the deeds they had done. You see that? Now, we've oversimplified the cross and say, well, everybody's sins are covered. The only sins not covered is unbelief. Uh, the Bible doesn't teach that. Unsaved men are held accountable for every sin they've done. If it was already eliminated at the cross, why would it ever come up again? It comes up. And so we've got to ask ourselves, how many sins did Aubrey commit? Nine months, 14 days. How many sins did the aborted child commit? How many sins did that child that died of leukemia commit? You see, when we have children beneath the age of not accountability, responsibility, when were they old enough to respond to the gospel because their minds could understand it? What did we do with the Down syndrome child whose mental capacities may stay limited. Not all Down children have that limitation. But if you were limited mentally and you couldn't even know that what idea was right or wrong, would that be recorded against you? So uh, I'm inclined to believe that uh, God would get no glory whatsoever in sending someone to hell that had never raised their fists against him. I believe the cross where it covered them. I believe they'll be there, and God uh, can cover the bill for every pagan child. Think of how many children were put into the mouth of Molech in burning fires, how many children were slaughtered by a heathen mother and father and here to worship their gods, Dagon, on and on and on, Surprise of all surprises that all of these wicked parents have children in heaven because of the almighty grace of God. It's an overwhelming thing. 
Now, let's talk about it. Why in the world would God let Aubrey carry a baby nine months and have a baby outside the womb for 14 days? And uh, if you only knew the struggle, listen to this. This is Kelly. As a first-time mother, I was very excited to find out that I was expecting I was only a little afraid, but mostly eager to meet this little person growing inside me. I found out I was pregnant when I was only two weeks along. Joel and I had been praying for a while, asking if God would bless us with a baby, and he had. All was going great until the 20th week appointment. We wanted to find out if we had a boy or a girl. The technician kept searching, as it were, uh, and figured out we were having a girl, but was concerned the baby was undersized. We waited two weeks, and indeed, he had been right. The child had a disease in which the brain was not fusing correctly, and that was the reason she was smaller and she was supposed to be. She was four weeks behind in size. This broke my heart, but I claimed Jeremiah 29. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Then you will call upon me and come and pray, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And this came to my mind as one of my mother's favorite passages. Joel and I cried. We prayed together. We told God from the beginning that Aubrey was his baby, and we wanted to give it to him and his will and we were okay with whatever he wanted to do. If he wanted to take her to heaven, that was okay with us. But because of her brain not forming the right way, the doctors told us that Aubrey would more than likely die any time and not to have hope that she would be taken home. The doctors tried to convince us that it would be better for Joel and mostly me to terminate my pregnancy. Since we believe that every conception is a life, just like the Bible teaches us, we said no. My doctor would tell me every time I came to just give up the pregnancy. It made me feel so upset that he couldn't see how much this little girl meant to us. One day with tears in my eyes, I said, my God doesn't make junk or throw away babies. Aubrey isn't a throwaway baby for us. She is our child, and we want her. My doctor looked at me with pity and said, you don't understand how much pain this is going to cause you, how much this will take out of you and Joel, and how much work this will be for you too if she lives. This time I was the one to look with pity. No disrespect, doctor. But you're the one that doesn't understand. I know that you've had many years of schooling and many years of being a doctor, but this is my baby, and I don't care what this will make of my life, whether it's harder or not. If she needs a wheelchair, we'll get one for her. If we need to sell our house and buy one that will better fit her needs, we will do it. And most of all, if she only lasts for one more minute, I still have wanted to have gone through this. Please do not tell me again that she will die, because if it's God's will, it will happen, 
And if he chooses to let her stay with us and live a long life, then it will happen. And either way, we will rejoice because Aubrey is our daughter and we want her no matter what. Doctor, do you understand? The doctor never suggested abortion again. Aubrey's our miracle baby. We were told she will never respond. She will more than likely die any minute. If she makes it to term, she won't make it through delivery. If that happens, she will only last a few hours and maybe a few days. Aubrey responded through the whole pregnancy to anyone who would talk to her by moving towards the sound of their voice. She made it to her due date, which was rarely happens for a first-time mom. She lived for 13 days at the Oakland Kaiser NICU with help from wires and tubes that were connected to machines and from the great care from the doctors and nurses. And I'll stop there, but it is amazing. She went to heaven while they were singing, I surrender all. All to thee, I surrender. Joel wrote some thoughts that he asked, we must have done something wrong. What sins did we do to bring on this? How could this baby be a good gift? if we're going to have to care for it the rest of our life and never have a baby that could talk, maybe a baby that could never get out of a bed. He searched his heart. How could God be in this? And then he gives the verse, strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. And he said, surely if she was fearfully and wonderfully made and his works are wonderful, if my God's ordained just nine months and 14 days, he's a great creator, and we'll thank him for nine months and 14 days. He says he's homesick now, and he quotes from a song that Mercy Me wrote, I close my eyes and I see your face. If home's where my heart is, then I am out of place. Lord, won't you give me strength to make it through somehow? I've never been more homesick than now. And Kelly quoted her father who said that uh, God never wastes a heartbreak. And he said, baby girl, God doesn't waste a hurt, and this is a big one, to see a grown man weep as much as he did this is the loss of their first grandchild and the chance have lost two grandchildren. Patty and Jackson were hoping they'd finally get their arms around a grandchild having lost their first one. What could God be teaching us? Let me say this. You will never get a satisfactory answer by asking why. Why's never have an answer. What we need to move from is not why, but what does he want to teach? Let's move to what. And uh, I just summarized several scriptures. Could it be this? And God tested Abraham, and he said, take Isaac up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. Does God test you? He did him. God... Um, said to Satan, have you ever seen anybody that loves me any more than Job? Satan said, the only reason he loves you is you pay him a wage to serve you. 
You've given him children, cattle, prosperity. Nobody loves you and all the benefits evaporate. God said, I'll let you go on him. Just don't kill him. He passed the test. Sometimes we'll be tested. Test our love. God did that to Peter. You say you love me? Take care of my sheep. I'll give you a bunch of fallible, dirty sheep that are just like you, strained all the time. You take care of them. Show me you love me. So this couple has truly been tested, as all of you that have lost a child. Um, Deuteronomy 8.3 said, God tests us to show us what's in our heart. He said, Israel, I led you in the wilderness to show you you really don't love me as much as you think you do. Um, I'm hoping to get to heaven without an ultimate love test because my best love is about like that compared to him. I'm getting there by grace. Um, Joseph Bailey, who buried three of his children, one to leukemia at the age of five, an 18-year-old son killed in a sledding accident, and uh, another child younger said, my wife and I have never felt closer to God than when walking away from the fresh graves of our children. We have never felt closer to God than walking away from the fresh graves of our children. Charlie Roscoe came by to see me uh, the other day, and he, he, uh, Kelly and Charlie, he brought the poem that was given to he and Della when their boy died. They've lost three children, three sons. Uh, Della carried one child nine months, full term, and the baby died, like you. And then she lost another child, and then Frank Adrian was, I believe, ninth grade or tenth grade, right in there, uh, and uh, taking the curve for us folks who know Selby, going to Crockett, driving his dad's uh, beautiful pickup, going too fast, took his life. Charlie was in Fresno on a locomotive. He was called, said your boy was killed. He thought it was Nick, the way it was first communicated. And in that time, someone brought, he and uh, Della, this poem. It goes this way. I'll lend you for a little time a child of mine, God said, for you to love them while he lives and mourn when he's dead. It may be six or seven years or 22 or three, but will you, till I call back, take care of him for me? He'll bring his charms to gladden you. And should his stay be brief, you'll have his lovely memories as a solace for your grief. And Charlie was telling me how much fun and laughter Adrian brought to the home. I cannot promise he will stay since all from earth return. But there are lessons taught below I want this child to learn. I've looked this wide world over in search for teachers true and from the throngs that crowd life's lanes, I've selected you. Now will you give him all your love, nor think the labor vain, nor hate me when I come to take this lent child back again? 
I fancied I heard them say, Dear Lord, thy will be done for all the joys thy child shall bring. The risk of grief will run. We'll shelter him with tenderness. We'll love him while we may. And for the happiness we've known, forever grateful stay. But should the angels call for him much sooner than we've planned, we'll brave the bitter grief that comes and try to understand. Uh, I read the story of a man left New York. This is 1947 going to Quito, Ecuador. And as he was going out of the uh, terminal before the flight took off, he found a piece of just scratch paper uh, on the terminal floor, uh, advertisement on the other side of that paper was just the word why. And he scratched off a note to his mother, Mrs. Chalmers, and uh, sent it to her. Then he gets on the plane and he's going to be a missionary. And uh, while he's on that plane, he uh, gets on the exact plane. Let me give it to you here. Uh, the, he was going to be a part of the ministry of Voice of the Andes. And then he gets on a plane flying in there, and the plane crashes into a 14,000-foot mountain. But mom had already, already sent this letter, and, and staring in the mother's face was this other side, why, why? And Mrs. Chalmers is one of the first people, I don't know if she wrote it or if she clung to it, but out of that incident, she said this line about her son who prematurely died as a missionary. God is too kind to do anything cruel, too wise to make a mistake, and too deep to explain himself. And so when we come to these times, uh, what do we do? God's maturing us. Uh, let me say, uh, Joel, Kelly, You'll be comforters in this church like you never could have been before. Uh, Charlie and Della will stand with you in the second service. Charlie, because you know what? He can comfort you. I was at the funeral of Adrian. I saw him shake hands with over 500 people, and every student that his child went to school with, he had a word to him. I thought, how can the man do this? He said at the end of the aisle right here, and all these students are passing by because of John Sweat High School. And I thought, Charlie, sit down, sit down. You've got to be exhausted. No, he had a word for every one of them. And when you're weeping, and if you want to bury your child and have someone who understands, talk to Della. Talk to Charlie. He looks like a big, mean Mexican, but inside he's a teddy bear because he suffered. And he said in the midst of that trial, he had me crying Friday. I couldn't hardly keep my, I didn't keep my composure. I went and got Kleenex. And he finally said, if there would have been a better plan for Adrian, God would have kept it, but this was the best plan for his life. 
I'll accept it. And I thought another song we were singing in the waiting room, we sang, I had to leave about an hour, then they were singing, I surrender all, was uh, It Is Well With My Soul. And so if I uh, am right about infants, now if I'm wrong, it's too bad we didn't get her baptized. But I think the cross, the grace of God, the non-ability to ever rebel, just born to a fallen race that I believe even the sin of Adam could be atoned for by the death of Christ and applied to this child. I think when you get to the city, you're going to see Aubrey. And the question will be, uh, what would she be like? I'm not quite sure. We don't have a lot of Bible, but I know this much. And I don't know how this, I'm still baffled by it. How in the world did Peter, James, and John know it was Moses and Elijah? They'd been dead for over 1,500 years. Hey, hi, Moses. Hey, well, you don't have a Kodak picture. You don't have any pictures of Moses. You've never seen Elijah. I know him. And you're going to know Aubrey. She's going to know you because there will be a mental state. There won't be a bunch of uh, diapers in heaven. They get maturity. They get a mind there. They can enjoy all that's there. And so uh, we will stand with you tomorrow as a family. And church, we weep with those that weep. We'll weep with the Diaz family. We'll weep with the chance. And if things, good things happen to you, for us who know how to dance still, we'll let them dance, okay? Then get happy. We're going to do this amazing thing in, in the midst of all this trial. Joel loses his job. What a time to lay a guy off. You know, bills don't continue when you have trials. How many of you know I just told a lie? <laughs> and so uh, we're going to take a love offering of those who want to be a part. I don't know how many expenses they've incurred to see that child in intensive care in all those days see Patty and Jackson, Ariel, Gabby, to see uh, Kelly's mom and dad and sisters. Uh, it's good for us to, uh, I think Christianity never guarantees you immunity from life's trials. It just guarantees you God's help through them. And so we don't teach a prosperity gospel. And we don't teach immunity from trials. We're not a bunch of Twinkies. We've been burying our martyrs for two centuries or 2,000 years. So this thing has not started out for just the Twinkie faith. It may cost you more than you ever realize. And Jesus said, before you follow me, consider it. You may have to die. But without me, you'll be eternally dead. So, um, uh, I thought it'd be nice this morning that uh, since some of you can't make the memorial service, I'll have uh, the chance come and stand and Patty and Jackson. Charlie, you've got to come. Uh, you made me cry all day Friday. I said, come and stand with this couple. And uh, if you want to give it an offering, you can. If you want to give a word of comfort, maybe has any of you here ever lost a child? Any of you lose a child in infancy and way back? My folks did, so we always, I watched the mother cry twice a year for all of her 
years when she buried her boys. So I'm acquainted with that. So let us stand. And uh, Joel, Kelly, you, why don't you just stand here to the side, not get in the way of the stampede of those who will give. And the grandparents come, and Charlie, our father, suffering often turns us into comforters because after we've been comforted, we're able to comfort. We suffer today with Adrian. We suffer with Doris. We suffer with our missionaries that are under great stress. We suffer with this couple today that came up and said, there's no work. We can't find work. Oh, let us not forget when things are going well for us, it may be going doubly bad for someone else. Let us be a loving, caring people. I pray that you'd move us to give, Lord. Whatever Joel and Kelly's financial needs, making the house payment that goes on, uh, the bills go on, I don't know. I hope they can keep their house. We pray that you'd open up work for Joel and uh, strengthen him and just heal their hearts. Oh, the testimony. I wept as I read these letters and their testimony. The stand they took, you can't take my baby's life. I believe God wove her. I believe God's ordained her days. And if he wants to take her, he can take her. But I'm not letting the doctor take her. Thank you, Lord, you gave them that conviction, that backbone. It was costly to them, but they stood by your word. Aubrey's yours. You gave. You alone can take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the church said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.